2020 election coverage on UPR is supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. And Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu slash online. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's author of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. And he appeared last week at a virtual event presented by USU's Institute of Government and Politics and USU Department of Journalism and Communication. The title of that event was The 2020 Disinformation War, How Propaganda, Conspiracy Theories, and Fake News Are Shaping the Presidential Election and What to Do About It. And uh, McKay Coppins uh, previously was a reporter for the BuzzFeed News, recovered two presidential campaigns. He was a reporter for Newsweek as well. He's listed by as one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and included on Politico's list of uh, 2012's breakout reporters. Lives in uh, New York and uh, joins us uh, from there. McKay Coppins, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Do, do we have Mr. Coppins on? Oh, sorry about that. Oh, I'm here. Uh, oh, Thanks oh, for having me. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, it's good to have you. Good to have you on. Uh, I want to uh, talk about election, of course, and uh, very interesting, the disinformation war. Uh, I want to start just briefly. Um, seems like I'm doing that every every time uh, these days uh, with, with COVID, with the pandemic. You wrote a fascinating article uh, in The Atlantic. This was May, I think, flying during the during coronavirus. You said that subtitle is more difficult than you thought and, and uh, maybe more despair about returning to normal. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I uh, this, this was earlier on in the pandemic, and I, uh, I had a, a reporting trip that I couldn't cancel. And so uh, I, you know, took all the precautions that I could. Uh, my experience is probably different than those who are flying now, though I'd be interested to hear uh, what the experience is like for others. I haven't flown since. But, you know, I, I kind of thought that it would be actually more pleasant than normal because so few people were flying. I figured, you know, no lines at the TSA check-in and space to stretch out. What, what I actually found was that at least on one of my flights, it was packed. Um, there, you know, every single seat almost was taken there was no room for social distancing. This was early on in the kind of mask mandate era, and uh, some people were not abiding by it. Some pe- others were very mad about it. And what I found was that it, there was this kind of uh, ever-present uh, tension, <laughs> you know, that uh, between uh, travelers that that wasn't there normally when when I would fly. You know, flying is it can often be kind of an unpleasant experience, but In this case, it felt like the stakes were heightened and everybody was kind of at each other's throats on one of my flights. um, I I went to take my seat and it was right now, you know, I was seated right next to somebody else. And the man who was sitting there kind of barked at me to sit somebody somewhere else because we had to social distance. And then a flight attendant appeared and told me I had to sit there. And there was this big standoff with me in the middle. uh, He actually that my seatmate actually put his leg up to block me from sitting down. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was quite the, uh, the, the experience. Um, it did not make me eager to fly again. And I do think that it gets at this bigger question, like you mentioned, of how the return, you know, what, what does it mean to return to normal, right? Like a lot of the country has now kind of haltingly reopened various aspects of society uh, but as long as there's still this tension uh, between, you know, fellow fellow men, right, uh, it, it makes the full return to pre-pandemic life a little more difficult. Yeah, I uh, love how you end this piece. As the plane ascended, you pressed your head against the window, peered down the despairing runaway, uh, tried to ponder the miracle of human flight, and then then you then you uh, realized, oh, somebody else might have touched their, you know, COVID-infested head against this, this window. Uh, not your words there, but... Uh, yeah, and 
you know, so we're we're kind of worried about uh, our fellow human beings. I wonder about uh, your reporting. You'd, it maybe probably traveling less. Would uh, does that make reporting harder? Much less. It's actually, it is a really strange experience. Like you mentioned at the top, I've covered uh, two presidential campaigns before this, um, and this one is completely different than the first two. Um, you know, in, in 2012, I was on the traveling press corps that covered Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. So, you know, there were days where I was taking four flights a day, um, traveling, you know, chasing the candidate from Ohio to Florida to New Hampshire to, you know, Boston or whatever. Um, to now, you know, in, until recently, there were basically no campaign events to cover. Uh, President Trump has started to hold some campaign events, but, uh, you know, a lot of employers are kind of hesitant to send reporters to these events because they're big crowds of people. Sometimes they're indoors. Very few people wear masks. Um, and employers don't want to put uh, their reporters unnecessarily in, in kind of unsafe conditions. And then, yeah, in general, um, it, it, it's strange because so much of re- political reporting and just reporting in general kind of relies on uh, in-person meetings, right? It's the, hey, can I, gra- can I buy you a drink at the end of a long day with a, a presidential campaign aide or <laughs> meeting with a press secretary some, somewhere, you know, get, getting dinner with a source? And none of that is happening. So all the reporting that I'm doing is basically me sitting at my home office, uh, you know, dialing numbers on my phone and trying to get people to talk to me. And, you know, luckily I have kind of an existing network of sources who will talk to me, but a lot, some of the best stories that I've done over the course of my career have kind of been the result of happenstance, right? Like somebody happens to pass along a tip when uh, we're out at a coffee shop or something, and you weren't expecting it, but then you follow that down the the road that it leads to some bigger story. And th- that kind of stuff just isn't happening as much. So I, I I will say I never thought after 2016 I was pretty burned out on campaign travel. I, I think I had t- I'd just been to – I traveled too much. I'd been away from my family too much. But uh, in 2020, I, I find that I'm actually missing the campaign trail more than I thought I would. Mm. Yeah, I guess there, you know, there's is excitement, right, and pageantry, and, and all the rest of it. Um, I'd like to get into talking about information, disinformation, and and how that's evolved over the, you know, the the campaigns that you've uh, uh, covered. You, you gave a very interesting experience in this this talk you gave this event, uh, the virtual event at USU. Um, I guess an experiment of sorts, right? You you put on a MAGA hat mm. on Facebook. <laughs> And a virtual MAGA hat. A, a, a virtual yeah, so MAGA hat, yeah. Fall, it, was, it, was about, it was about a year ago, um, and what I did was I created a, a kind of fake Facebook account, which was uh, separate from the one that I typically use, and I you know, made up a name, and I actually did put on a red MAGA hat and took a picture of myself with it. And what I did was I started clicking like on the official Facebook pages uh, for Donald Trump and his campaign. And then from there, Facebook's algorithm sort of took over and uh, prompted me to follow people like Ann Coulter, the conservative uh, commentator, Fox Business, uh, various fan pages for Donald Trump. And basically what I was trying to do was create a Facebook feed that was like fully Trumpified, right? It was the idea was... uh, you know, so much of the news that was fed to me in my normal digital life um, was sort of skewed toward kind of mainstream news outlets in places like the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or NPR, and uh, and that's because those are my news my my typical news consumption habits and uh, the various social media algorithms that figured that out. I wanted to create a new uh, Facebook a Facebook identity where I would just kind of fully immerse myself in pro-Trump content, whether that was content coming from official uh, campaign uh, outlets or from kind of media organizations that had aligned themselves with the president. And uh, the experience was pretty disorienting, uh, in part because, you know, this was during the impeachment hearings. And 
what happened was during the day, I would kind of do my day job as a reporter, and I would be watching the hearings, and I would watch the witness testimony, and I would come to my own conclusions about what I was seeing live on TV. And then later in the day, I would get on uh, this Facebook feed that I'd created, and I would find often videos that had been created by the Trump campaign that kind of took different moments from the same testimony I had seen and remixed them and super cut them together to make it seem like something else entirely had happened. And what I found myself asking more than once was, you know, is that actually what happened today? Did I misunderstand what I was seeing? And I would actually have to go back and check. And what I found was that after several weeks of this, my grasp on kind of uh, you know, a, a objective truth and reality started to feel a little bit looser than it had been. It, it wasn't so much that I believed all the content I was seeing. It was more that I was becoming cynical about every every headline that I saw, right? There was kind of a flattening effect where a New York Times headline would, you know, seem about the same to me as a video made by the Trump campaign, which would seem the same to me as a Breitbart article, which would seem the same to me as a uh, an NPR article. And I started to feel like, you know, who even knows what to believe? It, it was kind of an overwhelming feeling, which obviously was uh, alarming to me in part because I had set up this experiment kind of knowing what I was getting myself into. And still I found myself sort of overwhelmed by the onslaught of, of information and propaganda. And it made me sort of wonder how effective this stuff was on both the right and the left for people who uh, had kind of unwittingly found themselves uh, immersed in these information bubbles, as opposed to somebody like myself who chose to go into it to, to write about. Of course, part of this is is money, right? Algorithms uh, to to monetize our eyeballs, and so uh, you know the companies are going to give us more and more of what uh, the algorithm says we want. Um, how much of this is targeting, and um, you know, uh, bots, Russians? I mean, how much of this is quote unquote malevolent, and, and how much of it is is you know just corporate algorithms? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a combination. That's a good point. I mean, you know, uh, let, let me take the first the first point you made, which is the, the the question of how much of this is, you know, foreign disinformation, Russian disinformation. What I found in my reporting, so basically from that experience, I ended up spending basically the next year reporting on this issue of, of misinformation and disinformation in our politics and how it's shaping the 2020 election. And what I found was that after 2016, we all as a country became kind of obsessed with uh, foreign governments interfering with our election. And, and I think to some extent that was understandable, right? It, 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 intelligence communities in the U.S. did conclude that Russia meddled with the 2016 election. Uh, they did a lot of kind of clever, savvy uh, uh, propaganda that looked like it was coming from Americans when actually it was being produced by what's called a troll farm in Russia, where people were basically posing as Americans to create this content. But what I found was that in the years since 2016, while we became preoccupied with the idea of foreign governments creating this kind of content, a lot of domestic actors actually got pretty good at doing it, right? So like a lot of uh, political operatives and media outlets based in the United States started to mimic the tactics that Russians and other foreign adversaries had honed and started deploying them on behalf of their chosen candidates or causes here. And so um, a lot of the, the you know, I, I think that a lot of people are tempted now to dismiss uh, content that they see as incendiary on the Internet as you know, foreign disinformation, Russian disinformation, when in reality, a lot of it is actually just be it's it's still bad faith, you know, disinformation, but it's coming from inside the house as, to borrow a, a horror, a horror movie trope. Um, but you're right. But the other point you make is also important, which is that uh, this is driven by uh, big social media platforms who um, have found that the easiest way for them to increase engagement, to keep people involved on their platforms, and ultimately to make money, 
is to serve uh, users content that validates what they already think, right? And so if you are, let's say, you know, a hardcore Trump hater, uh, and maybe you're somebody who is a, uh, a, a little bit prone to conspiracy theories about Donald Trump and Russia, um, you will find it very easy to, uh, you know, have that worldview confirmed every time you open up your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed uh, or Instagram or whatever, because what will happen is the, these platforms will notice what you have been clicking on and will start to feed you similar content, uh, serve that up on your newsfeed, whether or not it's, you know, accurate or, or you know, fact-checked or produced by a reliable source. That to these big kind of big tech companies, the question of accuracy is sort of beside the point. They don't care about whether the information is accurate as long as it's keeping you on their platform. And that is a huge issue in, in the whole question of information wars and how fake news and conspiracy theories are affecting our politics, because at the end of the day, this is all happening on these tech platforms that could crack down on the problem if they wanted to, but until very recently have shown no willingness or interest in cracking down on the problem. And now that they actually are, you know, uh, maybe we'll talk about this, but just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen examples of Facebook and Twitter start to take these questions more seriously and grapple with them. But they're doing it in sort of a ham, ham-handed, you know, uh, groping through the dark way where it's clear that they haven't really thought through the precedents that they're going to send, set. And they're sort of arbitrarily uh, trying to take on things on a case-by-case basis, which creates even more chaos and more distrust because... Uh, various political factions in America feel like big tech is censoring them. And so that creates a whole other set of issues. Yeah, and conservatives are uh, trying to leap over to, to start up this this uh, conservative Twitter. I forget what they call it, uh, for one uh, example. Parlor. Parlor, parlor, parlor. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's deal with that. Um, so, uh, you know, big tech, uh, how much of a responsibility do they have? And, and, and I guess we have some responsibility, right, <laughs> you and I? I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, whenever people ask me, um, you know, what what can what, what can be done about this problem, I always kind of separate the question or the answer into two categories, right? So there's the personal, what we can do, and then the structural, which is kind of more about regulation and reforms uh, at a higher level than, than the individual consumer. So um, I guess I'll take those in reverse to answer your question. So the, the big tech platforms, um, they, they have a lot more ability to control what is on their platform than they want us to believe. Right. Like and one way we know about this is that, um, you know, for example, Facebook very early on realized and, and so, you know, YouTube and Twitter very early on realized that um, jihadists and terror groups were using their platforms to try to recruit uh, people to their cause. And, uh, of course, these big tech platforms didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so. They created algorithms and, um, and programs and trained armies of engineers to make sure that jihadist recruitment videos couldn't appear on Facebook or YouTube. And they basically succeeded. You know, that content really doesn't appear on American big tech platforms anymore because they were able to, to crack down on it. After 2016, uh, when it became apparent how much Russia had sort of infiltrated elements of the American uh, internet and uh, had kind of successfully set up all these various groups and ads um, uh, targeting American voters, uh, Facebook cracked down on the issue. Mark Zuckerberg said, we're going to kick these people off. We're going to take this issue very seriously. And they more or less have succeeded in that. You know, every couple months there's an announcement that Facebook has discovered another, you know, 600 fake accounts and they've uh, they've erased them from their platform. And so they've done a pretty good job there. So they, they have the ability to uh, keep, you know, abusive trolling, hate speech, um, you know, disinformation, conspiracy theories off their platforms. But 
the the it really comes down to philosophical questions about what they're willing to uh, censor from their platforms and what they're not. Right. So I talked to a guy named Richard Stengel, who served as the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy under President Obama. And his job, basically, for the three years he was in office, was to sort of fight in the global information wars on behalf of the United States. So a lot of his time was spent trying to figure out how to counteract propaganda and disinformation that was coming from ISIS and from Russia. And he basically came to the conclusion by the time he left office that there was this issue was never going to get solved until uh, the big tech platforms decided to solve it themselves. He said, you know, there's just too much, there's too much stuff out there. The issue is too overwhelming. uh, And these, these platforms have to be held accountable. And so what he suggested and what he's, he's kind of advocated for is, amending the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which shields online platforms from liability for messages that are posted by third parties. Basically, he thinks that companies like Facebook and Twitter should be required by law to police their platforms for disinformation and abusive trolling and hate speech, and that otherwise uh, they can be liable to be sued for uh, what's posted on their platform. Now, Big tech platforms obviously hate that idea. They've, <laughs> they've hired lobbyists to fight that. But there actually is kind of a bipartisan consensus that's growing uh, between Republicans and Democrats in Washington uh, around the idea that the, the, these platforms have to take more responsibility. Otherwise, they shouldn't be shielded from liability the way they have. Um, and then the, the other thing, just quickly... Uh, you mentioned, you know, what what we can do personally. That that's a whole other question, and it's a little bit harder because I think it goes against our our human nature. But what I always I, I always tell people is that um, if you see, and this is I think especially relevant advice right now in the final two weeks of the presidential election, where there's a lot of political content uh, flying around on the internet. A lot of people are kind of paying attention to politics in a way that they they don't usually pay attention to it. But um, if, you, if you're scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and you see a headline that just makes you feel so smart, like it makes you, it's, you know, some news development that validates everything you believe about your, your side of the aisle and the other side, then you should be suspicious of that, just reflexively suspicious of that headline. Um, not to say that it's not true. It might end up being true. But there is an entire cottage industry of, uh, of people who are creating content just to make you uh, believe what you already believe, right? To inflame divisions, to make you hate the other side, to make you uh, believe that your entire worldview is correct. That, and these algorithms are all geared toward that, right? And so what I always tell people is that when you see some kind of new headline or new piece of information, before you share it, before you, you know, click retweet or click share on Facebook or, you know, start t- talking to your neighbors or family about it, do, click another tab, open another tab, whether you're on your laptop or on your phone. And just, I mean, it sounds simple, but just Google that story and see if it's been confirmed by other uh, outlets, ideally ones that have a track record of accuracy, whether you think they're biased or not, see if they've been uh, confirmed. That story's been confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, CBS News, NBC News, ABC News, the Washington Post. You know, I, I know that some people say that these are, you know, liberal outlets that they're biased, but and, and I think there's actually some merit to you know criticisms of those outlets, but they they have professional working journalists there who make sure that they're not publishing, you know, complete fake news. And so, uh, you know, see if that's being reported by other places. If it's not, it's probably not quite on the level and you should be skeptical of it. Yeah, good uh, good advice. Uh, let's take a break and we'll come back more on the disinformation uh, war. And uh, later in the program, uh, McKay Coppins, I want to ask you about um, the, you know, the future of both parties, especially the Republican Party, 
I guess either way, if Mr. Trump wins or loses, your book 2015, right, uh, The Wilderness, was when it was published, and mm-hmm. uh, features uh, all those players in the primary that uh, eventually uh, eventually produced uh, Donald Trump as, as the, as the uh, nominee. Um, McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The uh, Atlantic, an author, as uh, mentioned, of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. And uh, he joined a uh, virtual event for USU last week called the 2020 Disinformation War, how propaganda, conspiracy theories, and the fake news are shaping the presidential election and what to do about it. You can reach this conversation with your question or comment by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this. 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu online. And the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. Cash Arts and UPR are presenting This Is Her Place, a podcast that tells the stories of Utah women, past and present. Today, Wednesday, October 21st at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Social distance guidelines will be followed and masks are encouraged. Tickets available at cashartsorg thisisherplace. On the next Living on Earth, stark divergence on science in two close Senate races in Iowa and Kansas. I think both of these races really illustrate how climate change has become such a partisan issue and how science has become so politicized. I'm Bobby Bascom, Midwestern Senate races and the environment. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Coming up next at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour is McKay Coppins. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, author of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. And uh, he headlined an event last week for USU titled The 2020 Disinformation War, How Propaganda, Conspiracy Theories, and Fake News Are Shaping the Presidential Election and What to Do About It. You can join this conversation with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess uh, at uh, gmail.com. So, McKay Coppins, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories. This is all, you know, of a piece with information, disinformation, what we've been talking about earlier in the program uh, with social media. Um, what do you make of uh, this, um, you know, surge in um, uh, belief or maybe in some cases just use of uh, the QAnon conspiracy theory? Yeah, you know, I, my colleague Adrian LaFrance wrote a cover story on uh, QAnon for The Atlantic earlier this year, and it was kind of, you know, that QAnon had been steadily growing in popularity at the time. I think it ran in, you know, May or something like that. Uh, But I remember finishing it, and it was a very good piece and well-reported and well-argued, but kind of being like, yeah, this is, you you know, I don't think this is something I have to worry about that much. I I felt like, you know, this is, there's always been a fringe element of America that believes, you know, a variety of conspiracy theories, and uh, QAnon seems to be the kind of in-fashion one. And I was completely wrong about that. I think that actually, you know, if anything, since then, uh, we've seen that QAnon has has grown, you know, not only in popularity, but in credibility, because it's being, you know, uh, amplified and in some cases championed by, you know, people in office, political leaders, including President Trump, who, who recently uh, refused to disavow QAnon. Uh, has in in recent months said that people who believe in QAnon are patriots who want our country to do well. And and I I do think it's in any conversation about QAnon worth just briefly summarizing what the core tenets of it are, which are basically that there is a secret cabal of elites who are uh, Satanists, cannibals, and pedophiles who run the country. I, it sounds insane to even say that. I don't. I don't like repeating it in interviews because it's so outrageous. 
uh, but that is what, the, what that's what QAnon is about. And uh, there's, of course, you know, no evidence for it at all. It's a completely debunked conspiracy theory. Uh, but it, the reason I think th- there are a few reasons that it's become so popular. One is kind of just a general distrust toward elite institutions in America, which, frankly, I think a lot of those institutions have earned at least a portion of, you know, um, anybody who wants to read about this, I would suggest uh, Chris Hayes has a book called Twilight of the Elites, which he uh, in which he kind of recaps a decade of failures by elite institutions in America that have created conditions where there's this crisis of authority in our country, where whether you're talking about the courts or financial institutions or uh, the media or education, um, there, there are, you know, there's kind of been this perfect storm of, uh, of high profile and high consequence failures that have led people to be suspicious of, uh, of people in power. Now, <laughs> connecting that dot to some of the kind of more outlandish claims in QAnon might be hard, but when you have these conditions, uh, it's easy for people to start kind of let their minds run wild, right? But this is also a problem of the, the kind of structures we were talking about earlier. Until very recently, the big tech platforms, Facebook, Twitter, allowed the QAnon community to thrive, to gain converts, to continue to kind of amplify their, uh, their uh, you know, their views and their ideas and their claims. And I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm, I, I bet there are people who are listening to this who have had the experience of watching people in my own life, friends, uh, you know, distant relatives, start to flirt with this conspiracy theory and even start to be taken in by it, uh, you know, in real time. You know, there are, I, I think of one friend in particular who was, uh, you know, I, I followed her along on Instagram and kind of early on in the pandemic, she started posting memes uh, opposing the lockdowns, which I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree with those policy decisions. And, I, you know, that's fine. But from there, she then started to flirt with uh, conspiracy theories about vaccines and then conspiracy theories about, uh, you know, Democrats in general. And then she started to post QAnon content. And I could kind of see almost like watching, you know, a scary movie. <laughs> you want to yell, you know, get out of the house, right? <laughs> like I could see this person I knew and who I thought to be somewhat, you know, reasonable person start to be taken in by this stuff. And, uh, you know, there's no reason that Facebook had to allow or Instagram had to allow this content to flourish on their platforms, but they did. And then uh, just in the last few weeks, Facebook announced that they were going to uh, uh, kick off all the QAnon accounts and Facebook groups from their platform, deciding that uh, it was creating dangerous conditions. A lot of them were advocating for violence against public uh, celebrities or public people who uh, were supposedly part of this conspiracy. And, and they've eliminated it. And I actually think it will have uh, a, a real effect on how much further QAnon can spread. But as it, when you've allowed it to kind of get to the point where millions of people are part of it, it's hard now to kind of uh, reverse the tide because they waited so long to do it. And so I, I think QAnon actually is an interesting case study in how much power and influence uh, these, these uh, big tech platforms can wield um, for good and for bad. Mm. I'll talk just briefly before we move on to another uh, topic here, um, uh, uh, maybe about the future, where this is going, maybe um, get your take on this. Um, the conventional wisdom is back whenever it was in, in the good old days, we were kind of all on the same page, or at least that was the, what we thought, right? Very, very few media outlets, right? No social media, um, uh, accepted, you know, a uh, series of facts that we all subscribe to, or at least we thought we did. Uh, now, many of us willingly living in echo chambers and, uh, and uh, maybe a growing despair over, uh, hey, is, is, is there even objective truth? I don't know where you think this is going. Yeah, this has been kind of a thing that I've been concerned with for actually even predating the Trump presidency. I don't think that Donald Trump kind of 
as some uh, liberals might suggest, kind of created this argument. Um, but I do think that there has been a growing um, a growing lack of consensus uh, about what uh, whether there even is such a thing as objective, you know, uh, observable reality or objective facts that everybody in America, regardless of their opinions and political persuasions, can coalesce around. Right. Um, I wrote a piece a few years ago for the Columbia Journalism Review about the rise of the partisan press on both the left and the right and the dangers that that poses to democracy. Because, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who believes strongly in the market of ideas. I went to I, I still remember I went to, uh, to BYU and I remember the journalism class where we were taught that concept that. Um, that the market of ideas is important, that, uh, you know, the way to defeat bad ideas in, in a free society is to let them be aired and then defeated uh, publicly. And I believe in that. But I also believe the market of ideas only functions if you have objective reality serving as a regulating force, right? So if all of us can at least agree on the basic facts, then we can have it out about what to do about it, right? So the way to to make a, a, a case about whether it's taxes or how to you know defeat terrorism or foreign policy or immigration or whatever, I think that there are a lot of reasonable opinions across the political spectrum uh, that can be aired, but they all have to be rooted in facts. And increasingly over the last uh, you know couple of decades, and especially in the last I think five to ten years. We've gotten into a situation where vast swaths of the country don't even agree on the most basic facts. And when you get into a situation like that, it's impossible to create a consensus around any issue. It's impossible to uh, make a case, uh, you know, make an ideological case for whatever cause you believe in, uh, because everybody's just going to kind of retreat to their corner with their own their own tailor made facts to confirm their worldviews. And nothing ever gets solved. And so that, that's my biggest fear about uh, where this is all headed. I, and that's why I, I continue to kind of, you know, do these forums and write about this and report on it, because I do think that um, if we can have a, a re, reawakening or a rediscovery of the value of kind of observable reality and pair that with a sense of humility in the mainstream media about what we don't know, you know, I think we could all be a little bit more transparent about the stories we write, what we do know and what we don't and where the sources are coming from. I think that that would do a lot toward kind of moving us in a direction where we're in a more healthy information ecosystem. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, some specifics with the election, uh, which is uh, about, what, two weeks away now? Exactly two weeks away. Um and uh, we have McKay Coppins with us. He's a staff writer with The Atlantic. And uh, we'll have more following this. Cash Arts and UPR are presenting This Is Her Place, a podcast that tells the stories of Utah women past and present. Wednesday, October 21st at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Social distance guidelines will be followed and masks are encouraged. Tickets available at cashartsorg thisisherplace. The first debate was chaos. The New question Supreme is, Justice, the radical question, left, will you who shut is your, up, man? Listen. The second one was canceled after the president tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, former Vice President Biden and President Trump face off one last time before election night. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us Thursday night for NPR's special live coverage of the presidential debate from NPR News. Thursday night at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Kate Salinas, Manager of Special Project Content for UPR.org, where you can find national election broadcast details. And thanks to our partnership with the Herald Journal, local election candidate information. Details available on UPR.org. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for the UPR newsletter. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have with us McKay Coppins, a staff writer for The Atlantic, uh, with us uh, for the hour for another uh, ooh, 10, 12 minutes. Uh, he is author of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. 
You can join us uh, with your question or comment uh, by emailing us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, McKay Coppins, uh, whatever else you say about President Trump, he uh, it is undisputed. He is unconventional. That, that last debate was quite the deal. What uh, what do you expect uh, in the debate uh, tomorrow? Uh, yeah, quite the deal. I think is a good <laughs> good description of that debate. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, the uh, one of after that last debate, which was so chaotic and had so many interruptions um, and so much crosstalk. And, and honestly, there were moments where I, I had to even mute the TV because I just it was giving me a headache. I couldn't take <laughs> the shouting over each other. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, um, you know, what the debate moderators and the debate commission could do to, uh, to make it so that the debate was more accessible and more productive and helpful to voters, right? Uh, the one concession that I've seen is that while you know the when the first when a question is asked and each candidate is given two minutes to respond before the back and forth, uh, the the moderator is going to mute the mic of the candidate whose turn it isn't uh, to talk, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right, so Joe Biden gets asked a question, he starts to give his answer, he criticizes Donald Trump. I will be interested to see if Trump can restrain himself with his microphone muted uh, from kind of shouting over the answer, trying to interrupt Joe Biden, um, and, and, you know, how that'll work. If there's anything we know about this president, he's very unpredictable. He doesn't seem to really care about rules, <laughs> and, uh, and he's going to want to make a spectacle like he did last time. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I, I'm actually in the camp that thinks if this does help restrain Trump, it could actually end up helping him because, uh, you know, first of all, I don't. It, all polls suggested that after the last debate, voters did not like that performance from the president. In almost every poll, uh, Joe Biden actually ticked up a few points, um, and the polls about the debate specifically showed that most viewers thought that Joe Biden won. So, if this can cause Donald Trump to restrain himself, I think that'll probably be good for him. I also think that it's true Joe Biden has a tendency to ramble a little bit in some of his answers. And if, and I think he was actually saved a few times in the last debate by Donald Trump kind of interrupting and hijacking the, the event. And so if Joe Biden is given a chance to kind of lose his, his uh, stream of consciousness or, or uh, start to kind of ramble, that might also help Donald Trump. So we'll see what ends up happening. We'll talk a little bit about the future, uh, I guess, uh, either way, who, whichever uh, gentleman wins uh, uh, the election. Uh, so uh, 2012, I believe you, you talk about this in your book, 2012, the, the, in the aftermath of that election, um, we had the famous autopsy. Um, and um, conventional wisdom was, uh, yes, maybe that's the way, the way the Republican Party needs to go. And then Mr. Trump came along and seemed to, his playbook seemed to be the opposite of the autopsy, and that turned out to be a winning strategy. Uh, I, I wonder where, you know, it's, if, if let's start with if Mr. Trump loses. If he loses the election, um, where do you think the Republican Party goes? Yes, it's an interesting question, because I think that, um, you know, the the post twenty twelve Republican National Committee autopsy basically suggested that the party had to adapt to the demographic realities that were taking taking shape in America. Basically, it looked at the demographic forecasts for the next uh, ten, twenty, thirty years and saw a country that was going to uh, you know see explosive growth among uh, Latino voters. Um, growth among black voters, a country where older Americans were going to pass away and the, the electorate would be uh, filled with the younger generation, which is overwhelmingly liberal, and basically suggested that the party, in addition to some structural things, had to moderate its views on immigration um, and, and, uh, and a couple of other issues. Um, and, of course, Donald Trump ended up winning four years later uh, doing exactly the opposite. He, was pro he probably ran the most, uh, you know, anti-immigration 
restrictionist uh, uh, campaign in modern political history, uh, and they ended up winning. And so to a lot of Republicans, the lesson was forget what the establishment is telling us, forget what uh, moderates are telling us. What we have to do is tack more in the direction of kind of uh, not just restrictionist immigration views, but also, um, you know, populist conservative messaging. Um, and uh, and that if you have the right messenger, then uh, then the party can succeed that way. I, I, the, the big question that I hear when I talk to Republican sources now is whether Donald Trump was sort of the last gasp of that brand of politics, that maybe 2016 was the last year, the last national election, where the electorate existed in a way that that message could succeed, or if it signals a broad realignment in American politics, where the Republican Party becomes more working class uh, and can actually build a coalition across various ethnicities and races, but that's built around middle and working class voters, whereas the Democratic Party uh, becomes a more kind of gentrified uh, party for the affluent and the educated. Um, I I don't know what the Republican Party is going to decide. You know, I think that's going to be if Donald Trump loses, as the poll suggests right now, I think that will be kind of the defining debate over the next four years uh, within the Republican Party. At the same time, the Democratic Party is going to have major tensions as well. Right. So if Joe Biden becomes the president, he's immediately going to face enormous pressure from the left wing of his party to, for example, uh, expand the Supreme Court and add add judges to the Supreme Court, which would be a pretty radical escalation in the judicial wars over the uh, over the that have taken place over the last few decades. Uh, there is going to be pressure from figures like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in the House of Representatives to uh, get behind the Green New Deal. Um, there will be a number. I, I think a lot of the story of the Biden presidency would be the kind of tensions between his more moderate establishment brand of democratic politics and this rising, more radical brand of left-wing politics. And how that plays out, I don't know. I think that's kind of the $1,000 question right now um, about the uh, Biden presidency. But uh, it it will be uh, an open debate, and it'll be an interesting story to watch. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that uh, the, the tensions in both parties are going to have to deal with it, I guess, sooner or later, depending on who wins. Um, I wonder, maybe we just spend the last oh, about three minutes uh, talking about uh, vote by mail. You wrote an article in the Atlantic uh, profiling Utah, which is a red state, which has had a uh, fairly long experience, successful experience with with uh, uh, voting by mail. I wonder what your, your, your thoughts are with, with many more states now. Uh, because of COVID, uh, jumping into vote by mail, and what what's going to be the effect? Do you think? Yeah. So for that piece, I, I interviewed Spencer Cox, of course, the Lieutenant Governor of Utah, who has overseen the expansion of vote by mail, and and what he basically said was that in Utah, it's worked very well. There's bipartisan consensus that it that it's a, a good option for voters, and they've had time to implement a lot of um, you know kind of. Uh, mechanisms to ensure that the votes uh, are all counted and counted accurately. He said that they have found almost no voter fraud, virtually no voter fraud, in the years that Utah has been doing this. Um, and and so he, he was very optimistic about it. And what he said, you know, he actually told me that Utah has been working with other states who are now uh, implementing it because of the pandemic uh, to teach them how to make sure that it works well. So I actually am pretty optimistic that it will work. Um, uh, it, you know, we've already seen, uh, you know, record early voting uh, in, uh, across the country. And I think that it, 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 the actual mechanics of it will work. The, the thing that I'm worried about and that Spencer Cox also kind of raised alarm bells about was that with vote by mail, it takes lo- a much longer than normal to count all the votes. Right. Because you have ballots coming in over the course of days and weeks. And so uh, this is probably not going to be a situation where we know who won the election on election night. We as a country have kind of become conditioned to know who the next president was going to be 
by, you know, the next, the morning after the election. Uh, that's probably not going to be the case. Now, it's possible that there's a landslide, and, and we do know, but most likely it's going to take at least a couple of days. Uh, you know, in, in the most recent Republican gubernatorial primary in Utah, it, I, I think it took a week from the time that polls closed on Election Day uh, to the time that they called Spencer Cox as the uh, as the winner. And, and he was saying that voters in America should be prepared for that and not think that that means that there is, go- there is you know, some kind of, uh, you know, corrupt uh, situation going on. <laughs> this is just a, a, uh, an exceptional experience. Uh, we're in a strange situation, and uh, it, it might take a week or even longer for us to find out who won, but we, we shouldn't lose faith in our democracy because of that. Well, we'll uh, we'll all be tuned in. I'm I'm sure, um, and I'm sure you'll be doing a, a reporting uh, with this. McKay Coffins is a, a staff writer at the Atlantic, author of The Wilderness, and uh, he was involved in an event for USU virtual event titled "The 2020 Disinformation War." Uh, that happened last week. And uh, McKay Coffins, we appreciate so much you uh, joining us today on the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about Utah food traditions. Uh, the, the book is called, as folklorist will join us, and the book is called This is the Plate, a clever title. And, of course, we'll talk about uh, green jello. Uh, much more uh, tomorrow. We'll have a little bit of fun. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. 2020 election coverage on UPR is supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. Working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. And election coverage is also supported by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu slash online. With another Project Resilience tip, I'm Alex Shewal, a researcher with Utah State University's Center for Persons with Disabilities. We all experience isolation or loneliness from time to time. However, older adults and people with disabilities that limit their ability to go out independently may experience these feelings more frequently. Now, more than ever, we are all more isolated, but we know that social connection is vital for our well-being. One way to reduce the impact of this and build our resilience and connection is to call your friends and loved ones up on the phone and tell them how much you appreciate them, tell them a funny story, and ask and listen to what they have to say and how they are feeling. It can be hard to remember to call someone up just because, but building one call a day into your routine may benefit you and all the people you connect with. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. The Utah Debate Commission has organized debates for candidates in all of Utah's congressional districts, as well as for candidates for governor and attorney general, and UPR has been broadcasting all of these. The last debate from the Utah Debate Commission for this year features candidates for Utah Attorney General. The Democratic candidate, Greg Scordis, will challenge the Republican incumbent, Sean Reyes. Join us Wednesday evening at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. That's coming up tonight on UPR. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.